0: Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house having a meal and for the sake of this discussion we're going to call it church. A woman walks into church who's not like everyone else. She's a new visitor, definitely from the wrong side of the town and in fact it says that she actively lives a sinful life. She behaves inappropriately in the eyes of all those present. She's a bit too obvious, a bit too in your face a bit close to Jesus and everyone feels uncomfortable. Simon voices everyone's inner discomfort and in Luke 7 verse 39 we read when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this he said to himself if this man was a prophet he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner and Jesus does know exactly what kind of woman she is yet he allows her to approach him to get close, to touch him, to be part of his group, to be intimately connected with him despite her sin. He doesn't judge her, but he recognises her need and her response, maybe not eloquently voiced in intellectual terms, but demonstrated with feeling and intensity. And he sees her for who she is and he heals her. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And to the woman, he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Because Jesus loved the unlovely. He saw the love where we see neediness. He recognised the inner anguish and the need for forgiveness where we see an embarrassing lack of protocol and poor behaviour. He didn't wait for her to know all the answers before he healed her. Jesus once said, there was once a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. And when it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to the invited guests saying, come on in, the food's on the table. And then they made their excuses. They were busy looking after the kids, going off to work, keeping up with the everyday stuff. They'd be there on Sunday for the meeting, maybe even in the week for Bible class, just not tonight when they got something else on. And when the servant returns to his boss to explain they may have a bit left over, his boss was upset. And he told him to go quickly out into the city streets and alleys, collect all who look like they need a square meal, all the misfits and the homeless and the down and outs you can lay your hands on and bring them here. And there was still more room. And his boss said, well, go to the country roads, whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is gonna get so much as a bite at my dinner party. Do we do that? Do we drag them in from the rough parts of town, from the back of beyond, to eat, to be part of our family dinner party? Not just a bit of soup and a roll, not just to sit awkwardly on a chair listening to us tell them what we think, not just to be a visitor, but to be as important as everyone else, to be the guests of God and of his son, Jesus. Or do we drag them in to listen, to be told, to only be allowed into the hall, but not our own homes, not our dinner parties, not yet. What do we call people who aren't members of our church? Visitors, maybe interested friends, outsiders, we might say they're of the world, we might call them strangers, or just them. And that's it, there's just easily a them and us culture. We so long to have visitors come into our church, and when they arrive, unless they look like us, what do we do with them? What if they're less well-educated, from a lower social class, from another country or culture? Do we treat them differently? I don't think this is always a conscious process. I'm not sure we know we're doing it. Because what these people definitely are not is unloved by God. But it's as if we see them as that, that God doesn't love them just yet. Maybe they don't read or write. Maybe they've got no social skills. Maybe they even shout out in the services. Maybe they take offence easily. At this time, it isn't them but us who need to learn how to behave. We need to be taught how to love as Jesus loved. We need to love everyone from the minute they walk in the door, to love them wherever they currently are in their lives. But so often it's as if we need them to prove themselves, to show up every week, to sit quietly, listen harder, learn faster, learn it all. And then we can love them just like everyone else. And we're initially cautious, maybe even distrustful. We sometimes approach with a sense of pity, maybe patronising them a little, dismissing their presence as only coming to see what they can get out of it. We might say, or we might hear, we've been providing lunch before our seminars for long enough now. They need to learn to come along for the spiritual food. We could stop with the meals. They don't really understand. And until they grasp the concepts of the promises to Abraham, the fulfillment of the law, the dry bones prophecy, they can't be baptized. Or they've been coming for five years now. They still don't get it. I think it's time to move on. But how did Jesus see others? How did he behave when the woman washed his feet, when she came into the church unannounced? Because we need to react in the same way Jesus reacted. We need to let others come close, to let them in the church and approach us. He showed compassion towards everyone and it wasn't sympathy, just sympathy, or even empathy, and it certainly wasn't pity. Empathy is being able to feel what another person's feeling. Sympathy is having an understanding of what another person is feeling. And pity is a kindly, but quite condescending, sorrow for the suffering or ill fortune of others. But compassion is the willingness to not only non-judgmentally care and understand the suffering of another, but also the desire to act to relieve that suffering. There's a quote which says that the core emotional experience of compassion is allowing another's heart to take up temporary residence inside of ours, literally meaning to suffer with, to get in alongside the messy, hurting part of another person's life. And there's quite a bit of science related to compassion. A lot of research has gone into how it can help. And there's a book that's been written recently called Compassionomics, which makes quite amazing statements. It's been shown that brain imaging using MRI tests can detect really subtle differences in blood flow in the brain and it can see high activity when that part of the brain is most active. The experience of empathy, the sense of feeling, causes the pain centre of the brain to light up. We're experiencing another person's pain. But if we were to focus on compassion, which is the action element of trying to alleviate suffering, A different area of the brain lights up, the reward pathway, associated with positive emotion. Empathy is feeling and compassion is action. Practising empathy could hurt, but practising compassion heals. Living compassionately benefits not only the sufferer, but also the giver. And if we don't practise compassion, then both will be the poorer. Think of that link with the church and those we're trying to help. And there's been many trials which this uh, book covers. They've shown that a compassionate approach before surgery from an anaesthetist leads to 50% reduction in the need for opiates after surgery and a shorter hospital stay. Patients who are randomly assigned to compassionative palliative care survive 30% longer. HIV patients treated in targeted compassionate environments have 33% greater adherence to their therapy. There have been 21 randomized control trials in the United States, which have demonstrated significant improvement in depression, anxiety, distress, and well-being with those that have had targeted compassionate therapy, and in Canada. A trial of the homeless presenting in A&E showed that those in the compassion arm of the study were 33% less likely to return to A&E in the next 30 days. We all know that there's evidence for the power of touch. We know that there's reduced pain, reduced cortisol-induced stress in post-operative patients. We know there's reduced rates of complications and hospital length of stay in premature infants who are held Has reduced pain levels in so many studies, reduced tiredness, reduced pain in cancer patients, increased haemoglobin levels in anaemic studies, reduced restlessness and cortisol variation in nursing home residents who have dementia. Dr James Doty from Stanford University was the founder of the Centre for Compassion and Altruism and he has written, As human beings, we will inevitably encounter suffering at some point in our lives. However, we've also evolved very specific social mechanisms to relieve that pain, altruism and compassion. It isn't just receiving compassion that relieves our pain. It's been shown the act of experiencing compassion and helping others actually leads to tremendous mental and physical well-being for us as well. While survival of the fittest might lead to short-term gain, research has clearly shown it is survival of the kindest that leads to the long-term survival of a species. It's our ability to stand together as a group, to support each other, to help each other, to communicate for mutual understanding and to cooperate, that has taken our species this far because compassion is an instinct. Recent research shows that even animals such as rats and monkeys go through tremendous effort and cost to help out another of its species who's suffering. And we human beings are even more instinctually compassionate. Our brains are literally wired for compassion. And as the compassion of Jesus led to healing, so it should prompt us to do the same, to want to act, to do something. The definition of healing is the process of making or becoming sound or healthy again. And we can learn from Jesus' dealings with his disciples about how this works out in practice. Because Jesus sent out his disciples early on in his ministry to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Two main concepts. Preaching the kingdom of God, the life we lead, the wonderful message of hope that we bring, but also healing the sick making something whole again and Jesus always does what he preaches. He did exactly the same because when they'd come back from that trip away Jesus decided to take them away with him for a bit of a debrief and a chat about what had happened but in Luke 9 verse 10 the crowds learnt about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. He did exactly what he'd asked the disciples to do. He didn't say to the crowd, the members of the church need a bit of time away on their own and we know you visitors are just coming along for the healing bit. We'll be back next Sunday if you need us. It says he welcomed them, he spoke to them and he healed them and the disciples had to wait. Their teaching came second to the need to tell others about the kingdom and to heal them. So what did Jesus' work at preaching and healing look like? Well, when John's disciples were sent by John to essentially ask who Jesus was, his reply was all action. It encompassed those two actions again, healing the sick and telling them the good news. In Luke 7, verse 21, we read, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, The lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And we're all broken. We're all sick. We all need healing. And at different times, we need it more than at other times. And let's not fool ourselves that we're any healthier than anybody else. In fact, the more broken a person is, the more God has to work with, the more space he can fill, And whilst we require our own healing, we're here to be Christ's healing arms and hands on earth to others. And whilst we are actively involved in loving people back to health, they've got to feel as much a part of our family as anybody else. They need to feel as loved as every other member of our church. We can't make distinction between anyone because everybody is God's child. But we can make it so hard to join this family make it feel like a test, an exam, an educational exercise, we can make people feel they're not good enough, they're not clever enough, Christadelphian enough to make that leap to commit to a life in Jesus. The Archbishop John Santamu once said, if you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. If you squeeze a Christian, do you get Jesus? And I think too often we might squeeze a Christadelphian get the Bible now don't get me wrong the Bible is one of the fundamental ways we can learn who Jesus was after all he is the fulfillment of the whole Bible message but the purpose of the Bible is to use it to become more Christ-like to demonstrate that behavior in our lives and to become Christ to those around us Jesus explained things in parables he explained the Bible to them in a way they could understand But in order to be able to simplify a story and get across the salient points clearly, we've got to understand it fully and clearly ourselves. It's not dumbing down the Bible. It's not overlooking the detail. It is tailoring it to our audience. We've all been given varying skills of intellect and understanding. And the role of the highly educated is to be able to inform others so that their lives are transformed, but their minds aren't confused they do not walk away feeling stupid or inferior. And whilst as a community, we are often good at the idea of preaching the kingdom of God, what do we like at healing the sick? And what we found in our experience is that those who have come to us for comfort have often been wounded and scarred by their past. They struggle to trust, they feel undeserving of love. Sometimes they lash out, often they reject help. They're scared to open up, scared to let us in, and scared we'll let them down. They feel they're not good enough, they're not clever enough, not strong enough. How easy it is for us to give the impression of superiority, often unwittingly. It's up to us to remain constant, always there, not taking offence, ready to love them, willing to share our own weakness, our own faults and our own struggles with our faith. It's scientifically proven that to have an emotionally stable adult in the life of a victim of previous trauma, especially trauma in childhood, helps recovery and healing going forwards. Shouldn't our church be that emotionally stable adult? And we're called to be part of that team in our church. So we know compassion works. We know that Jesus did it. He had compassion on them for so many reasons, because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd, because they were sick, because he didn't want to send them away hungry. He had compassion on them and at times he touched them and we need to reach out. It isn't enough to expect people to come to us. We need to touch, get close enough to feel the pain and the need in others because to be at a distance is to observe suffering but it's not taking part in it. We need to go out to drag people in to something they want to come to to people who need a meal need a chat need love and once they're here we've got to feed them and clothe them and accept them in luke 5 verse 31 we read it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick i haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and in luke 6 verse 32 If you just love other members of your church, and then probably only the nice ones, where's the grace in that? We all love people who love us. And if you help out those you know will help you out, big deal. If you happily lend money to someone who you know can pay you back, it's not much of a challenge. How about you try loving those who are fighting against God? Help them out. Lend them a fiver without expecting anything back. Not even a word of thanks because it'll be worth it to feel a real part of God's family, because God is kind to everyone. Be kind and good towards everyone, having a real desire to help them, just as your Father God is kind and good. And when the disciples were sent out by Jesus, he gave them this instruction. In Matthew 28, we read, they were told to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. When people come into our church, we need to help them to become disciples too. They can't remain visitors forever. They can't be them. They need to become us. They need to be servants of God, empowered to undertake their own healing, to be valued as fellow workers for Christ. We can't wait for them to become more knowledgeable, to know it all, The Gospel's about setting people free, but we choose to bind them, figuratively tying their hands until we think they're ready. We can't think we're in control of the salvation of others. We're here to lighten the burden and ease the load, to be facilitators of God's grace. And we've been challenged over the past 10 years in my church to see our role in society through different eyes, and it's been the most amazing journey. Currently we've got about 15 regular attenders at our seminar. We feed them all, we try to know them all. We've got another 10 or more we see from time to time and we keep in contact with them at least twice a month. We don't get the stock answer to our question of how are you as being good thanks, all covered up in fine clothes and great behaviour. We get real answers. Benefit claim forms, requests for help with bailiffs, help with no water, no heating, debt issues, traumatic past, loneliness, inadequacy, sadness. But we also have the most amazing, overwhelming gratitude and sense of growing trust. A recognition of being part of a family who cares about them, a real sense of belonging. So let us strive to make more disciples, to grow as a church as Jesus commanded us. Compassion can improve our lives and the lives of those we're in contact with in so many ways. We could be a church that heals and restores. Because we know that compassion reduces the risk of heart disease. Because it boosts the positive effects of your vagus nerve and that helps slow your heart rate down. We could be a calming influence on people's troubled lives. We know that compassion makes people more resilient to stress. It strengthens their immune response. We could be a strength to those people in times of difficulty. Compassionate people are known to be more socially adept. They're less vulnerable to negative health effects of loneliness. We can be a family to the lonely. Compassionate societies, those that take care of their most vulnerable members, helping others in need having children performing more acts of kindness are the happiest societies don't we want to be that compassionate society compassionately we can reach out to others in their suffering compassionately we can reach out to help and lift up to heal to restore to make well again because Jesus lifted others up quite literally at times. He raised people from a position of inferiority to one of equal standing. And every time someone reached out for Jesus, not only did he always respond, but when he left, they always felt better for it. Imagine if that was said of us. And we're gonna finish with Luke chapter 14. And then he turned to the host us Jesus and said the next time you put on a dinner don't just invite your friends and your family and your rich neighbours the kind of people who will return the favour invite some people who never get invited out the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks you'll be and experience a blessing and they won't be able to return the favour but the favour will be returned oh how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. Thank you.